Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here with Associate Professor Dr. Martin Clemens. Welcome. Great to be here. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your academic background to get us started. Okay, sure. Um, military historian is probably my my fourth or fifth inca- inca- incarnation in life. Uh, I was a music major for a while. I was an English major, uh, and I was a working class hero for quite a long time. And then uh, my early thirties, I went back to uh, get an undergrad in history. Um, I figured I was going to teach middle school or high school, and then I wanted a master's degree uh, to just increase my my pay in either of those capacities. Uh, And I went for a master's degree in uh, Monmouth University or at Monmouth University in New Jersey. And there, uh, there was a young professor, a military historian himself, who had studied under Russell F. Wigley uh, at Temple, uh, the Russell F. Wigley. And uh, this professor's name was uh, Christopher DeRosa. uh, And he really opened my eyes to what real history is all about. And I said, I I need to get into this gig. So uh, from there, I went to Temple University in 2007 uh, for the PhD program. I defended in uh, 2015. Okay, and uh, tell us a little bit about what you do here at CGSC beyond teaching the core and AOC classes that, that we all teach. Sure. Um, my, the, the, key, the key electives I teach is uh, the, the Vietnam electives, and um, I teach, uh, teach them in two kind of iterations. One looks at the Vietnam War from the other side, uh, really focus on uh, telling this particular story of uh, Vietnam's American War right? and how the, the kind of decisions that were made and how they approached uh, uh, you know, their civil war and what they were trying to do in fighting the Americans and uh, the French and then of course the South Vietnamese as well too. So that's one way that I do that. I tell the story from the Vietnamese communist perspective of the conflict. And then uh, the other iteration I look a little bit about or look a little bit at the, uh, the historiographical debates, right? Um, the traditional, if you look at Vietnam historiography, it breaks down into orthodox and revisionist schools. The orthodox school uh, starts with journalists, always the kind of first cut at history, uh, people like Stanley Carnot and others. Um, and essentially, until the 1990s, the orthodox view of the Vietnam War is that it was a, 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 a catastrophic disaster for the United States, an, uh, an immoral, unwinnable war that we never should have gotten uh, involved in. Uh, beginning in the 1990s, uh, there was some pushback against that from revisionists, right, who argued that the Vietnam War was not immoral, it was a good war, and had we done things differently, taken different strategic kind of avenues, uh, we could have maybe perhaps won the war, maybe things could have turned out a little bit different. So I look at some of the big debates uh, within those two schools of thought related to uh, strategy, um, our role there is uh, what we were trying to do nation building wise. Uh, so that's really what the second uh, iteration of the class looks like. So look at those big arguments and debates in the historiography between orthodox and revision, revisionist historians. Okay, um, and, and you also kind of craft our, our Vietnam lessons in our AOC block. So how, how have you kind of transitioned those as a lesson author? Okay, yeah, I, 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 I reworked them in light of um, America's withdrawal from Afghanistan, the fall of Afghanistan, right? Um, that for the second time now in 60 years, the United States has 
after a long period of support for a, a host nation, right, who were trying to help them, you know, build themselves up with their political institutions or military institutions, uh, we essentially turn around and say, we're not making this fight anymore and we leave. And uh, South Vietnam fell in 1975. And then, of course, uh, Afghanistan fell um, two years ago now. So really, I wanted to rework that to figure out why does the United States, despite having a preponderance of wealth and resources uh, and, and brain power, not why are we unable to win these hybrid wars, uh, this kind of mishmash? And the thing is, this is it's, it's these strange combinations of kind of conventional war, guerrilla warfare, mass politics that we really can't seem to solve. So I reworked the uh, the Vietnam lessons to kind of reflect those challenges of hybrid war, uh, what exactly it is, and you know, ask questions of why we can't seem to to solve this particular kind of conflict and and generate desired political outcomes. Okay, let's dive a little bit more into your into your background here. Um, the people who, who see you, especially away from the schoolhouse, will might perhaps see you on a motorcycle. Um, <laughs> yes, you mentioned kind of your background as a as a proletarian hero. <laughs> um, so so how do you mesh those two things? How do you mesh this kind of uh, East Coast working class background with with getting into academia, which which can often those two worlds can often not touch each other. Yeah. Um... I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I guess I kept just my kind of, I don't know, real world kind of experience. I used that within academe to kind of help me navigate some of the landmines and pitfalls that are involved in that. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, history departments, as all academic departments, can be highly political. Um, there's a, there's a lot of issues that go on there. So I think it kind of helped me keep my my head a little bit and, and to kind of navigate that, understand human nature a little bit, not take things so so seriously and, and be maybe oversensitive to, you know, issues that might have been going on around mm -hmm. me. So uh, it also helped at Temple that Temple had uh, just a great coterie of military historians and, and we kind of bonded together, um, even though we knew eventually we'd be competing for the same jobs down the road. It was just a, a wonderful bunch of uh, individuals and it really helped me kind of steer through that. So mm -hmm. um, I used to lament to my advisor at Temple, uh, Greg Irwin, how, uh, you know, I wish I had done this earlier because, again, I started a PhD program when I was 40 and it, it's tough doing that. I mean, I was, I was old among my colleagues there even though they tended to be you know adults themselves right, right. Uh, which was odd and he would always say well things happen at a certain time for a reason uh, and I kind of believe that as well too again it's a kind of the real world perspective I think and just kind of living life outside of academia has helped give me a perspective on um, not only working within it but also uh, trying to understand history as well too and empathizing with uh, policymakers and particularly in the realm of the military history and stuff. So I think it gives me a kind of a different uh, perspective which I can use then to um, you know maybe understand history a little bit better and how decisions are made. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you mentioned Temple, and Temple is known for both military and diplomatic history. Yes. So, so how did you go from going to the grad program at Temple to deciding to, to study Vietnam? Okay, yeah, no. Um, I wasn't sure. The problem with, uh, and this goes even when I was a master's student, um, I couldn't decide on what to study. Because, I, I, I mean, I just love military, U.S. military history writ large. I love the American Revolution. I, lo I love the American Civil War and World War II. And I had done a lot of reading in the, those latter two, the Civil War and World War II, uh, even before I ever thought of doing this. Uh, I would just read it for fun. I really found these conflicts fascinating and all the kind of uh, you know the, the social uh, issues and the drama and stuff that's that's tied up with these these kind of stories. 
Um, so when I, as a master's student, I couldn't decide what I wanted to do and I wasn't sure when I knew I was going to be a PhD student what my area of focus would be, what my kind of specialty or, or, or emphasis, what it would be on. Um, so my first year uh, at Temple, I was that same way. I, was, I wasn't sure what particular area or, or conflict I wanted to study. Uh, I was definitely an Americanist. I had to kind of keep it within my wheelhouse. Um, so what happened is that it was in 2007. Uh, it was when uh, the surge was heating up. It was also a year after the new uh, counterinsurgency field manual had come out, and it was uh, highly contentious. It was uh, because it was a uh, synthesis of uh, military personnel and academics, uh, social scientists, and this created uh, a large buzz in academia. Right. Con uh, People were, were uncomfortable with this idea. And one thing I've, I've always kind of been attracted to is kind of conflict. I don't like getting into conflict myself, but I've always, I, I'm fascinated when, when other individuals, obviously studying war is one mm -hmm. of those issues. So for me, I was drawn by the kind of uh, that, that argument and debate and, and the heat that was being generated based upon that. Um, that conflict. And from there, um, I, I got my first publication. I wrote a, um, a, a, a research seminar paper, which later on got picked up by Small Wars and Insurgencies, which looked at that very thing. It looked at the use of uh, academic and social science knowledge for counterinsurgency in the Cold War, right, and made kind of parallels between the two. Uh, so from there, uh, I was like, well, I'm, I guess counterinsurgency I find very interesting, and also what was going on in Iraq at the time uh, in Afghanistan. So from there, I said, well, if I'm going to study something, maybe I should study the largest kind of counterinsurgency campaign that the United States has ever been in, uh, right. the Vietnam War, and then that's what kind of led me there. So it was a long and kind of circuitous route. Um, and I've stuck with Vietnam uh, because of my advanced age, same thing. I don't have, uh, you know, I'm on the backward half of life. Uh, it's, you know, time is, is not... A luxury for me anymore so I got to kind of do a deep dive on on something so I can't become a jack-of-all-trades so I think I'm gonna stick with Vietnam for the foreseeable future uh, to try to see where I can take this as well well and let's talk about that field because uh, listeners might be familiar with kind of the, the more contentious aspects of Vietnam historiography um, and well beyond academia um, I think Ken Burns's documentary series kind of kicked open some of those too so, so, as you've described it, we kind of have these schools of historiography where you've got kind of the initial um, run at it, which, you know, as you said, a moral war, incorrect war, unwinnable war, and you've got the revisionists who come in and, and suggest there's nuance to that. Uh, but now we're at the point where a lot of Vietnam veterans are dying. And, and as a, as a pre-modernist, I don't study conflicts where people are still alive, so I don't have to worry <laughs> about what they think, right? Um, that's, that's certainly a luxury in, in some ways. So how is the field of Vietnam studies changing as the veterans die, as maybe some of the light and heat fades, and we can make more kind of um, academic assessments of, of what happened and, and what didn't happen? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a great question. And, and I think we're moving into kind of like a post-revisionist kind of period with Vietnam historiography. And yeah, a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, I mean, if you trace that those divides between the Orthodox and Revisionist school, and, and, and Gary R. Hess, uh, who wrote a book about this, he was the first to kind of take a look at these two schools of thoughts. Um, he identified that, yeah, you can trace both of those schools back to even when the war was going on. The hawks and the doves and their political divisions and the way they, they argued over the war at the time, that later on carried out throughout the, uh, you know, the historiography of the war. Plus the anti-war movement, I think. Is, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's definitely part of it. And while there's, well, you know, people who are still invested in 
these stories, um, you know, they're still going to disagree with like, like the Ken Burns uh, documentary is a perfect example, right? Uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick got pummeled from both the left and the right hand side based upon those two schools of thought. So they're very much alive and kicking. That's usually know? a sign you're doing things right. right? We're both <laughs> yes. to attack you. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a whole new slew of, uh, of kind of post-revisionist, if you will, uh, Vietnam historiography, which which challenges this kind of stuff. Um, Greg Daddis, his, uh, his work on um, the Vietnam War, both during Westmoreland's tenure and then also Abrams, has kind of showed that there's a lot more kind of overlap and in, in, there's a lot of areas of agreement between those two schools of thought. Um, and there is some overlap. So um, he's doing good work at kind of getting over those divides to, to reassess whether it be Westmoreland or, or, or you know, the Vietnam War under the Nixon administration. Uh, but I think some of the most important works are coming out of um, uh, historians of foreign relations, right, who now are down to the archives in Hanoi are opening up. People such as Pierre Aslin and um, uh, Hang uh, Nguyen, uh, their books, um, they're really now that the archives are opening up, they're getting a real window into uh, the decision making from the Politburo at the highest levels. And it is really complicating, you know, the, the Americans' perspective on what was going on. The idea that the war was unwinnable, I think these historians are showing that it is simply that was not the case. It was a very near run thing for Hanoi as well, too. It was not always theirs to win or lose. Uh, so, and there were very you know, number of times uh, throughout the war where things were pretty close with them. Uh, and plus also, they, it sheds great light into how Hanoi, uh, you know, masterfully manipulated both Beijing and Moscow to get what they need when they needed it. Um, but also at times you could see where people such as Ho Chi Minh and others, uh, you know, they, they felt that pressure from those larger uh, powers as well, too. So I think that's the area now is where it's dying down a little bit. If you go to some conferences, you'll still still see there is some contention um, because it is so fresh and, and, and vivid for those that live through the experience. But I think as time's going, time you know marches on, we're going to kind of get away from that and we'll be able to really look at this in a more objective kind of fashion as well. Um, I tried to do that in my dissertation, which became the first book, but uh, according to one... Um, Reviewer, uh, I guess I didn't do it well enough because I was accused of anti-communist bias. So I mean, I, I don't know. I tried my best to be look at this thing as objectively as possible, but uh, I think it, it's we're you know Vietnam historiography is heading in that direction, and I think it's a good thing overall. So uh, final question: We teach the kind of where the army is in the early 2020s, which is large-scale combat, multi-domain operations, you know, armies, possibly army groups, fighting other similar formations. So how does a war like Vietnam, whether we want to call that a, a hybrid war or as it's often termed a mosaic war, how does that fit in with kind of the construct of, of these conventional, you know, basically armies fighting on a desert or a plain? Right. Uh, I mean, it, hybrid wars are more than likely going to be a thing of the, of the future. I, I simply don't see them going away. Uh, it's just the idea is that the United States, its adversaries are not going to play to its strengths. So they will do things differently. It doesn't mean that there won't be large-scale elements to that. There will be. And this is where Vietnam comes in. Vietnam was large-scale in some capacity, right? I mean, the adversary, uh, the Vietnamese communists, th th those that the United States combat troops actually fought, they were more kind of light infantry, right? It was really later on, it was the South Vietnamese military during the 1972 Easter invasion uh, and afterwards in which they were kind of conventional on conventional force. And mo but most of the uh, Vietnamese communist forces that the United States engaged with in South Vietnam, uh, be they People's Liberation Armed Forces, the, the or Viet Cong as we called them in the South, uh, or, or yeah, from part, the insurgents from the 
the South who also were organized in, in main force and big kind of units, or the People's Army of Vietnam, those that came down from North Vietnam who also fought, uh, you know, were organized and fought in a kind of larger scale uh, as well, too. So that, that definitely had a role to play in the Vietnam War. Um, and I think, so I think there are parallels with that, that you, you know, the hybrid nature of Vietnam, this, this, you know, this ever-evolving mixture of conventional war, guerrilla warfare, and uh, mass politics is going to be a thing of the future. So I think if the U.S. Army and the and Department of Defense writ large, they, I, I, I think it would be foolish to try to ignore Vietnam. I think we're kind of, again, it's like no more Vietnams was the rallying cry for a long time after 1975, and I think no more Afghanistans or Iraq is, Iraqs are going to be the similar kind of uh, a rallying cry, but the, the, the idea that we can somehow just pick and choose what kind of wars that our adversaries are going to wage against us, I think, is, is foolish. So I think we have to be prepared for both, right? Large-scale combat operations is definitely a thing. We see it now with Ukraine. Uh, China is gearing up its conventional military. That's a thing, but we cannot forget, uh, you know, counterinsurgency and how to maybe go about doing those things a little bit better and nation-building, you know. Uh, whether we can do nation-building or not, I mean, that's a different um, issue, right? But the thing is, I think with the U.S. military and I, here in the schoolhouse, what I tell my students a lot is, I mean, we 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 do have excellent operators and tacticians, right? At the t tactical and operational levels, the U.S. Army and the U.S. military is first rate. However, um, we're losing wars even despite that fact, right? So what is it? And I think it lies in the other realms. I don't think we uh, synthesize all our elements of national power, if you will. I, I think we uh, tend to, you know, bifurcate, as, uh, as uh, Tony Echevarra from the Army War College says, into kind of talking and fighting as separate spheres of activity rather than kind of unified. Uh, so I think we really need to, you know, have a better understanding of the holistic nature of war, including its non-kinetic fighting aspects and uh, utilize that to get kind of better outcomes. That's what I'm hoping for. But LISCO is always going to be a relevant thing. It was in Vietnam. I think it will be in any hybrid war we fight in the future as well. All right. Very well said. Dr. Clemens, thank you. No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.